Well, I got a question for you this morning. What do you want to be when you grow up? How many times did you hear that uh, over the course of your life? It's a question that some of us, many of us, struggle to uh, answer even as adults, unless you were Susan Gillespie, in which case you've always known that you just wanted to be in charge and run companies. I'm looking at Susan, I'm actually looking at Rogan, her son, because he's like, yeah, yeah, she pretty much did. Several years ago, there was a new career path that started to kind of hit the radar and pop up. Uh, Pollsters and researchers, social, you know, researchers that noticed these things began to notice that more and more young people said they'd like to grow up and be an influencer on social media. And for those of you who need a definition, an influencer is someone who makes content for Twitter, Facebook, Snapchat, Instagram, YouTube, or whatever uh, social media app that you're using. And you make money, or it pays you money, based on viewership and the number of followers that you have. Very, very important. How many people pay attention to you? And the question is, how much money can you make? And it depends on your level of influence. You know, that's one of those circular answers. But uh, you can make a lot of money or even just a little bit of money on the side. This is lucrative enough. Okay, so this is probably not news to many of you, but maybe this next part is. A year ago, Morning Consult Research Group uh, pulled 2,000 different, you know, randomly 2,000 different people, and they came up with these numbers. 57% of Gen Z and 41% of all adults say they would become an influencer if given the chance. You know, like... I suppose that's like saying, hey, would you become a professional football player if you had the chance? You'd say yes. But I mean, there are things that you'd be like, you're like no, I, I don't know that I want to be a CEO of a company. That sounds like a lot of work. But an influencer, definitely yes. In fact, three of 10 Gen Zers would pay to become an influencer. You know, that's like saying, hey, would you pay to become president? And you're like, yeah, I just want that job. They're saying this about being an influencer. So I got to ask, why? What's the attraction? And I know, uh, especially the younger people in this room are thinking, duh, I can make dumb videos on my own time, at my own pace, and potentially get paid a lot of money to do it. What's not to like about that, right? What's not to like about all the affirmation. I mean, you think about this. You just pull out your smartphone and whatever reel or whatever you want to watch, there's people on it. You're seen as being relevant. You have influence, which equals power, which brings wealth. But it makes me wonder why we as human beings do this. Why do we follow? What's in it for us? What do we want here? And reflecting on those questions are at the heart of our time this morning. So we're beginning a new series here for the season of Lent. Actually, it's going to extend beyond Easter, even a couple weeks. It's called The Questions Jesus Asks. And we always associate Jesus with what he said, don't we? But he was a great teacher, of course. The Sermon on the Mount is still regarded as one of the greatest all-time you know, instructions for becoming a good person and learning how to live well. But Jesus wasn't all talk. Far from it. Uh, When you read the Gospels, you notice that Jesus is often interacting, 
having conversations and dialogue with the people around him. And at the heart of those interactions are questions that he asks. They're often poignant and very profound, even though sometimes they're really easy to miss or even notice, but they make all the difference for us as we encounter Jesus, as we try to follow him. So for the next seven weeks, we're going to explore a different question Jesus asks. And today we're going to start with the very first one that he asks in the Gospel of John. What do you want? Jesus asked this question to a couple of disciples who belong to John the Baptist. And John the Baptist is Jesus' real-life cousin, but he's much more well-known in his world than Jesus was at this time. In fact, John the Baptist has set the entire Jewish world on fire by, I guess the word would be, uh, you know, he's living simply. Uh, Out in the wilderness is John, and he's calling people to repent. He's challenging them to return to God. It doesn't sound like a winning combo by today's standards, but in ancient Israel, John was seen as a prophet who God had sent And he was urging them to leave behind their wandering ways and come back to Yahweh. John had acquired a huge following. So in our standards, John would be a major influencer. And, um, you know, there's no way to pull out your smartphone and watch a reel here. This was very difficult to gather a following Um, I was trying to think, you know, there's no TV that you turn on. You know, there's no, like, prophet's channel. In fact, you can't even drive anywhere. You have to walk. So would you walk downtown from wherever you live uh, to see John the Baptist? I think a lot of us probably would be like, yeah, sure, I'll, I'll go check that out. I've heard about this guy from other people around here. Would you walk all the way to Snoqualmie? Mm, That's kind of a taller order. Or if you live in Snoqualmie, would you walk all the way to North Bend? Well, if you said yes, would you walk, walk all the way to the pass? Because that's about how far it would have been from Jerusalem to where John the Baptist was. I mean, it's mountainous. It's up and down in the nation of Israel, you know, even today. But it was like over 20 miles to where John is thought to have been baptizing people in the wilderness from Jerusalem. That's a long ways. And yet, hundreds. I mean, people came from far and wide to hear John preach and to be baptized in the River Jordan. And yet, when John met Jesus, he told his followers, I saw the Spirit come down from heaven as a dove and remain on him. He's God's chosen one. He's God's chosen one. That's an endorsement if we ever heard one. And we'll pick up the story with what happens next in John chapter 1, verses 35 through 42. The next day, John was there again with two of his disciples. When he saw Jesus passing by, he said, Look, the Lamb of God. When the two disciples heard him say this, they followed Jesus. Turning around, Jesus saw them following and asked, What do you want? They said, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? Come, he replied, and you will see. So they went and saw where he was staying, and they spent that day with him. It was about four in the afternoon. 
Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, was one of the two who heard what John had said and who had followed Jesus. The first thing Andrew did was to find his brother Simon and tell him, we have found the Messiah, that is the Christ, and he brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, you are Simon, son of John, you will be called Cephas, which then, when translated, is Peter. Well, next, in the continuing of that story, Jesus calls Philip, another disciple, who in turn invites his friend Nathaniel, and suddenly we have the beginnings of Jesus' inner circle of followers. And the question for all of them is, what do you want? Or another way to say it is, what are you looking for? It's a simple question, really, but maybe not quite a simple answer. And sooner or later, all of us face that question when we begin to take Jesus seriously. You know, a disciple is a really old-fashioned word, which basically means, I mean, its most basic meaning is a follower. And could you imagine uh, if instead of uh, followers on social media, we called them disciples instead? I mean, that would be kind of creepy, wouldn't it? Right? But I mean, it's it's the same word, follower, a disciple. And um, in first century Judaism, it meant that you lived with that person. You know, the person who was discipling you, you lived with them. You learned from them in class, you know, by lecture, but also it was very experiential, very hands-on through day-to-day life. You just saw how they reacted to different situations and people and how they prioritized things, uh, the rhythm of how they lived their life, the pattern. I mean, very, very, very powerful instruction. And the student at this time, first century Israel, uh, was almost always left to find a teacher for themselves. I was thinking this week, maybe it's not too unlike trying to find a college as you're a senior in high school. You know, all of the onus is on you. If you don't do this, no one else is going to find, you know, it for you. But uh, I'm not sure exactly how people found rabbis in this day if they looked around, you know. Um, you know, there's no such thing as classified ads or newspapers, not really even that anymore. There weren't apps or cell phones, so maybe it's personal recommendations or just word of mouth. I'm not exactly sure how people found a rabbi, but in the end, you took the initiative. There's nothing convenient about this at all. And Jesus, as he so often does, breaks out of that mold. You know, with some of his disciples, like Philip, Matthew also comes to mind, Jesus took the initiative. Like in the Gospels, we see Jesus pursuing them. Hey, come, follow me. And they received that invitation. But with others, like Andrew and this other unnamed disciple, they are pointed towards Jesus. In this case, they're pointed by John the Baptist himself, who's a religious rock star of the day, and he's giving a nod towards basically a spiritual nobody. This is strange. Verse 35, John was there again with two of his disciples. When he saw Jesus passing by, he said, look, the Lamb of God. When the two disciples heard him say this, they followed Jesus. So these two disciples, we know one is Andrew, brother of Simon Peter. And the other is most likely, we're going to guess that it was John, the writer of the Gospel of John himself. 
Uh, I mean, who else would remember such a trivial? You remember, like, hey, come and come and see, and they follow. They spend the day with Jesus. It was about four in the afternoon. I mean, such a random detail. Who would know that unless the person writing it was actually there? So we just presume that this was John the evangelist. And although we may not know for sure both of their names, we do know that they're both disciples of John the Baptist. And all of us can either uh, figure this out or imagine how difficult it would be to find and retain followers. And yet here John the Baptist literally gives them away. What's he thinking? Uh, You know, imagine if our Fortune 500 companies like started giving their most talented people away. That would be crazy, wouldn't it? The audience here who are originally reading the gospel in the first century already know these disciples. It's a who's who of the early church. Simon Peter, Andrew, Philip, Nathaniel, John. They're like the entrepreneurs, the founder of the Christian or founders of the Christian movement. I couldn't even think of a corollary to this. Um, you know, in, in make-believe land, it'd be like, what if you had Elon Musk, Mark Zuckerberg, Jeff Bezos, Bill Gates, I don't know, whoever else you want to throw. What if they were all interns at the same time for the same company? And you don't even know who that company is. You'd see that as a major leadership failure, wouldn't you? And yet here's John the Baptist taking the best and brightest, most talented disciples he has, and he gives them away to a nobody this Jesus of Nazareth, who he points out as the Lamb of God. What's the function of lambs in Judaism? I mean, this is pretty prophetic from John. I mean, lambs, the unblemished lamb was the sacrificial animal that was given to God as a way to pay for our, our transgressions. Their blood for my blood. And Jesus is pointing out, or John is pointing out Jesus saying, look, there's the Lamb of God. And this is not just an allusion to how Jesus would die, but also a belief that Jesus' ministry would supersede his own. He actually encourages them to transfer their allegiance to Jesus, an action which hurt John personally. So I was thinking about this this week. In my very small own way, I, I emphasize small, um, you know, I, I can relate to this and also appreciate John's humility. I mean, just his awareness of kind of where he falls within the spectrum of God's kingdom. I mean, it's actually pretty amazing. Even though he's seen as a rock star, it never went to his head. It was never about him. And one of the lessons that I learned a few years ago when our church was facing some really hard decisions during the pandemic, in fact, the the moment when the handwriting was kind of on the wall, that we were going to have to downsize some of our staff. We just didn't have the cash flow to keep everybody on staff. And I didn't want to lose talented people. And as I was, you know, coming to terms with the fact that we were going to lose Pastor Lindsay and Pastor Tim, I kept thinking... Lord, people like this don't grow on trees. How, how will we ever replace people like this? We can't. 
And honestly, I, I wasn't surprised with the two of them. Uh, they found, you know, role-serving other ministries pretty much immediately. And I had always thought, hey, we're going to survive this pandemic with as much intact as possible, and then we'll just rebuild. But sometimes God has different plans, doesn't he? And sometimes God asks us to check our own ambition. Gulp. Um, God was reminding me, you know, who, whose empire are you building? You're building yours or you're building mine? This is God's church, God's kingdom. We all serve King Jesus. Even John the Baptist knew that. And I, I sit, you know, two or three years later, and I marvel at things like, like, where did Julia come from? And that's God again tapping me on the shoulder and saying, you can't plan this out better than I can. And so we let go. We say, yep, you're in charge, God. How can I listen? How can I better, you know, how can I have more courage to follow? How can I surrender and check my ambition at the door? In the book, The Message of John, Bruce Milne finds a connection between John the Baptist and today. He writes this. At a time when public trust in Christian leaders is at an all-time low, the world is in desperate need of preachers who are prepared to mortgage their personal ambition and popularity out of a consuming concern for Jesus' preeminence and the advance of his cause by whatever human instrument— the challenge of Nietzsche to Christians in public view has rarely been more pertinent. Show me you are redeemed, and I will believe in your Redeemer. Wow. I, I checked because I was curious. Like, When did he write this? Originally, that book was written in 1995, but this is from a revised edition that was published in May of 2020. So he's probably writing that in 2019. I mean, how much more prophetic... Can you get them that? My job as a follower of Jesus isn't to gain my own followers. It's to point people towards Jesus. You see, this is discipleship. Discipleship. It's always been about helping others learn how to follow Jesus. Of course, it starts with me, myself, following first, and, and we have this word, we call it Christian formation, you know, the, like developing Christ-likeness in myself. And the stream of Christianity that I'm from, you know, we believe that God's changing the world one life at a time. It's a very bottom-up movement versus a top-down movement. But it's not just about me and me consuming more and more and more, you know, sermons or worship or books or whatever it is to, you know, build my Christ likeness. No, that is making Christianity all about me. It's always been about pointing others and helping others learn how to follow Jesus. That's the Great Commission, what Jesus calls every single follower to. It's bigger than just us. It's knowing our place in God's kingdom. It's his church. We are his people. We're building his kingdom. We're pointing people towards the Savior, the Lamb of God. 
Or as John the Baptist said himself, he must become greater, I must become less. So when the two disciples heard John say, look, the Lamb of God, they followed Jesus. In verse 38, turning around, Jesus saw them following and asked, what do you want? Or what are you seeking? Or what are you looking for? Would all be good ways to translate that phrase. And continuing on in verse 38, they said, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? Come, he replied, and you will see. Such a simple, such a so, uh, profound question, what do you want? And as critical as what Jesus asks is probably how he asks. I mean, imagine how he says this. What do you want? You say, what do you want? What do you want? What do you want? I, whenever I think of this, it always has kind of an edge to it. But I, I don't think Jesus said it with an edge or any accusation or annoyance. I think it was said as an invitation. It paved the way for him to invite them to come and see. It's genuine and kind. You know, in classic language for the Gospel of John, the disciples respond. I think they were trying to kind of play this cool you know, oh, you know, what do you want? Oh, Rabbi, where are you staying? Doesn't that just sound bizarre? Like, how, how is that the reply? Reply to Jesus, but it is their reply. And when you look into this a little deeper, the word staying, you know, where are you staying? It's from the word group that means to dwell, to remain, or to abide. So that has very loaded special significance throughout John's gospel. You think of John 15 and the vine and the branches. And Jesus is saying, you know, abide in me and you will do what? You'll produce fruit. That's what he's calling his followers to do is to stay with me, to remain with me. Hey, Jesus, where are you staying? Where are you dwelling? They're asking Jesus a pretty personal question uh, basically, like, teacher, where is your home, or how can I find you? What do you want? How can I find you? You know, sooner or later, when all of us begin to take Jesus seriously, we ask the same two questions. What do I really want from you, Jesus? And where can I find you? And when you consider following Jesus, the Lamb of God, we all start in the same place. And the reply is the same to each and every single individual one of us. Come and see. Come and see. It's like Jesus saying, hey, curiosity isn't enough, but it's a great starting point. Macrina Wedeker, the, the book that some of you are reading through called Abide, um, she writes that these two questions serve as guides for our transformational journey with Christ. What do you want? Where can I find you? And to truly become a disciple of Jesus, our following eventually becomes a choice of our own. It leads up to that all-important follow-up question, where can I find you, Jesus? And just as the disciples discovered, you know, we find our way with Jesus on the way. On the way. I don't know that I've ever had 
you know, faith, and this might sound weird from a pastor, someone who's been to graduate school, seminary, right, to study the Bible. I, I can't say that I ever had faith completely figured out. And by that, I mean there's constant growth and discovery. Relationships, like the one that we have with God, it's dynamic. It's never static or frozen in place or frozen in time. It's always changing and growing as we encounter new situations, as we face new challenges and seasons in life. We have to learn and relearn things from God. And I've realized the beauty of faith is that there's always mystery. Otherwise, it's not faith. It's, you know, certainty. And sometimes as you're starting off in your journey, you want certainty. You're kind of looking for that, and it seems really elusive. But you just need enough invitation. Come and see. And God provides for us. We find our way on the way. So what am I looking for? My answer to that question would have been different at various points in my life. As a young person, I wanted adventure, maybe in this order. I wanted adventure. I wanted my day-to-day, you know, whatever I was doing to to be meaningful. Uh, I wanted love and companionship. I wanted people to notice my value. And if I'm honest, I also wanted a lot of money, right? Because that makes finding adventure easier and it makes everything more comfortable. Amen? And as a middle-aged person, Maybe my list isn't so different. I I could say that my priorities have kind of shifted. Like, I'm not necessarily sure that I'm uh, as passionate about finding adventure as I used to be. But I would say that I I want, I'm passionate about contributing. You know, the, the been there, done that is a real thing as you age. And you start to ask the question, like, am I really making a difference? And... And what has my life, or what, what do I want my life to mean uh, in the, the second, or what I hope is the second half of my life? Um, in middle age, some desires have grown, others have lessened. I, probably in my 20s, the friendship tank was really full while I looked for love and companionship. And after being married for 20 years and raising kids, the love and companionship tank feels very full. It's probably the friendship one that I wish I had more time to pursue. You know, I've always learned and relearned a few things like money can't buy happiness. We all know that, at least theoretically. But man, the security it provides is really nice. And I often wonder, why am I so obsessed with comfort and with being comfortable? That's something the, the Lord is working on in me. Um, there's a valuable difference even though I don't always comprehend it, between being comfortable and being content. For a long time, I think I've been chasing after the wrong thing. I'd rather be content. And contentment doesn't need anything more that the comfort piece always seems to be after. So what do you want? What do you want? I believe there's one answer you'd hear over and over again if you ask the average person on the street, What do you want? They're going to say, happiness, aren't they? Is that what we're all looking for? The giant wild goose chase fleeting feeling of happiness? I don't know. But as I thought about this in the days since I wrote the message, I realized, you know, I'm kind of making this all about me. What do I want? 
And that's not really what Jesus was asking these two disciples. They had started to follow him, their first few steps in that journey. He's really asking, what do you want from me? What do you want from me? What do I want from you, Jesus? I think that what I want is I want him. I believe he has something that I can't find anywhere else. And for human beings, some of us recognize that real early on in life. And others of us discover it all the way at the end. And we're all spread out somewhere in between. What do you want from me? Is, is Jesus asking you that? I believe you have something that I can't find anywhere else. And so he invites you, invites me to come and see. Where are you staying? These are powerful words in the Gospel of John, but they kind of fit a paradigm for all people. You know, it's following It's hearing Jesus' invitation to come and see. And Jesus, I mean, sometimes you have all day. He gives us time to process. But there's always always a challenge in there. Like you're moving from just the curiosity to something more. You know, are you going to remain? Are you going to stay with Jesus? How can I find you? And those are the Three most powerful questions, I think, that, that we can answer. And when I take Jesus' invitation to come and see, I'm not so scared to pick up my cross and follow him each day. When I take Jesus' invitation to come and see, I want to dwell and stay with him in his, in his word and just in his presence. When I take Jesus' invitation to come and see, I experience his healing, his mercy, his forgiveness, his grace. I start to feel his resurrection life within me. When I take Jesus' invitation to come and see, his priorities, when I find my way on the way, his priorities start to become my priorities. I see the world around me in new ways with new possibilities. When we take Jesus' invitation to come and see, we experience his abundance and his fullness we realize there's more than enough, more than enough time, love, provision for us. And when we take Jesus' invitation to come and see, we're filled with his presence, peace, and joy. And that's what I want. I think all of us want that. And we can only find it in the Lamb of God. Please join me in prayer. Lord, we come before you and, oh man, all the things that happen to us in a given day, week, month, um, they're so variable, they're so different. But help us not to be so busy and caught up in that and distracted that we can't hear your question, what do you want? Help us to be courageous enough to continue following you, to just come and see And to take that step of truly remaining and staying and learning to abide with you. And God, we know it's not just about us. It's about you. 
in your kingdom. Help us to continually point others in your direction because that's what true discipleship is. We pray this in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen. We'll invite Danny forward and we'll continue in our final song together.